This is a special edition of Minnesota Native News, COVID-19 Community Conversations with host Leah Lem. COVID-19 Community Conversations is supported by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Health. Anine, hello. I'm Leah Lem. We're back with more conversations, more explorations about how Indian country in Minnesota is responding and adapting to the current pandemic. Miigwech, and thank you for joining me. Today on the show, tribal communities have a lot to offer when it comes to knowledge and perspective and how to keep our communities healthy. Today I'm chatting with Melissa Walls, PhD, who's Boys Fort and Kuchiching First Nation Anishinaabe, and has been appointed the director of the Great Lakes Hub for the Johns Hopkins Center for American Indian Health and is an associate professor of international health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Then we'll hear a bit about the latest from the state of Minnesota and the vaccine connector, which is a tool to help Minnesotans stay up to date as to when they can get the vaccine. But first, I'd like to start our conversation with the Ojibwe word for we got our shot. I talked with my dad, Bill Primo, who, like myself, is a band member at the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe. I asked him about Ojibwe words related to getting the vaccine. We uh, we got a shot is bajishka uh, wigu, and uh, to uh, mean like everyone's getting a shot, it's ngi bajishka wigumen. Uh, there's no specific word exactly for um, vaccinated. It comes, it, the, the word is used like to get poked or, you know, injected, something like that. Ngi bajishka wigumen. Ngi bajishka wigumen. Hopefully, more and more of us who want to be able to say that will be able to say that. I'm also looking to include Dakota words in the future as well. So many will face the decision as to whether or not to receive the vaccine. I talked with Dr. Anthony Stately, the CEO of the Native American Community Clinic, a bit ago about the vaccine rollout and the decision-making process. And he stressed the importance of ongoing conversation and community the reason we've been able to survive as a community is because we have, you know, used our ability to make good decisions based on our thought processes, right? We've, we've had prayer. We've had help for our ancestors. We've used our intuitiveness, which as creator gives us, you know, that, that sense of feeling in our gut, like, hmm, you know, um, and all of those things, including conversation with each other, has to be part of the decision-making process about what's safest for us in terms of our families and in terms of our community. Um, that's the best way to sort of make these kinds of decisions in these life-or-death matters. What Anthony Stately just said applies to all these conversations that help us relate to one another and get through life's changes. To hear more of that conversation with Anthony Stately about vaccine rollout at the Native American Community Clinic, check out the Minnesota Native News special report, Visiting Vaccines with Anthony Stately, on minnesotanativenews.org. We'll keep Anthony Stately's words in mind as we continue with this series of conversations. And now to kick off this round of chats, I talk with Melissa Walls. And today we talk about the Great Lakes Hub relationship with tribes and how to learn from tribal communities in a good way. Here's our conversation. So could you please, for me, introduce yourself? 
Sure. Uh, my name is Melissa Walls, and I'm Boys Fort and Kuchiching First Nation Ojibwe from my mom, German and Swedish from my dad, and I'm an associate professor at Johns Hopkins University, and I direct the Great Lakes Hub of the Center for American Indian Health at Johns Hopkins. Great. And where are you located right now? Are you in Duluth? Yeah, our offices are in Duluth, right near the Great Lake. And uh, that's very purposeful. I've been really lucky to be able to do research with tribes in the region since, gosh, like 2002. And uh, I could not see myself moving to Baltimore and continuing these relationships. And so Hopkins agreed and they let us open an office out here. Great. So can you give me your overview of what your organization and what um, the hub that you work at, uh, what what it does? Well, so Johns Hopkins uh, Center for American Indian Health is housed within the Bloomberg School of Public Health. So we are an academic institution uh, with missions for research and training and public health impact. And um, from those roots, uh, the center really grew into a place that does uh, lots of behavioral health work, lots of public health uh, response teams, lots of training, all kinds of fun public health research activities and programs. So, you know, public health, uh, people know more about it now. Right. Yeah, it's been uh, more on people's minds. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you tell me a bit about how things have changed since the pandemic started? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I should say that I am a trained sociologist. So I my PhD is in a very theoretical, very research laden discipline. And I was drawn to public health because public health equals action in a lot of ways. You know, it's about taking all of this science and translating it into something that has meaning in communities. And sociology does that too, but public health, I think that's kind of what it's known for. We opened this center in Duluth in August of 2019. So we had only, what, six, seven, eight months of time before the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. And wow, um, it was really actually a blessing in, in a lot of ways for us to find ourselves in Johns Hopkins University when the pandemic hit for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, Hopkins has amazing scientists dedicated to everything from vaccine work to epidemiology of this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And so we had at our disposal colleagues who could advise us and give us data and help us to understand. The other thing was the center uh, more broadly, so not just our hub, but the center that we joined has connections to philanthropy and to places that could help us get PPE out to communities. Or, um, you know, we created wellness boxes with funding from donors to get out to tribal members. And the other piece is the center has that infectious disease team. And wow, you know, we used to joke with them like, oh gosh, infectious diseases are a thing of the past. Now we worry more about mental and behavioral health issues. And then this pandemic hit and we were like, wow, we're so lucky to have you guys. And um, They have really worked with the National Indian Health Service and the CDC to develop tribally specific public service announcements and flyers and handouts. And so very early on when we were all very confused, like, what is this virus and how does it live and how should I, what are these mask things? And, you know, we were able to get information out to communities because we were part of the center. Yeah. So can you tell me a bit about that relationship then with the tribal communities you're involved with? Yeah. So I started um, 
my academic career because, because of family, really. My uncle was involved in a mental health research study. He served as kind of like a tribal liaison between a university team and communities here in Minnesota and Wisconsin, and actually a couple in Canada too. And he really helped me when I was, I was studying my undergraduate program at UMD in Duluth. And he helped me to see that this thing research could be a really cool tool to be able to work with, with communities and to, to have impact. And so through him, I was connected to graduate training and through relationships um, with the tribal communities we worked with, uh, I was mentored and taught how to do research at the university, but also how to do community-based, collaborative, very participatory research by tribal members. And uh, it was almost like a dual dual education in community and at the university. So I really lucked out in that way that I got to have my foot in both, both kind of worlds as I went through. Yeah. So doing research you know, with tribal communities, it's not it's not necessarily something some folks look forward to, uh, yeah. given history in the past. Um, can you talk about that, like that nuance of working in communities, and you know, what does it take? Yeah, they used to say. Actually, it's still said. I think that research is a dirty word, and a researcher, mm-hmm. the R word, can be a dirty word. And I understand that, and I agree. You know, I think. There's a long, long history of research and researchers exploiting marginalized communities, including including Native communities. Everything from, you know, taking taking data and never coming back with it to purposefully stigmatizing communities and, and also only focusing more subtly on like very negative things, right? And so I think the perception is, with good reason, what, what can research do for me? It's just furthering your career. And you're just, you know, looking at us like mice in a, in a lab. That's, that's not helpful. So definitely that topic early on in my career, I would say I would hear about it more often. And, you know, I think it's a balance. Personally, it's a balance. Like you want to become defensive, like, no, no, that's not me, but maybe it is right. You have to constantly self-examine yourself and say, Am I doing this for reasons of equity? Am I doing this to serve my community? Am I doing this because the community wants this? Or am I doing it because it furthers my career? It's this, you have to constantly question it. So I don't know. I think we can always do better. I think that for me, the answers are always in relationships and never moving forward with anything unless, number one, tribal governments want it. And number two, tribal community members have a voice and a say and a stake and a role in the research process. It's it's a lot of work. It's also very rewarding. Uh, the relationships sustain me, and you know it brings you life. It brings it keeps you keeps you humble too. <laughs> yeah, and you know this past year with the pandemic and collecting data, um, especially from Native folks, um, it it's it feels like we can be at the same time exploited but also overlooked. Yeah. Um, Can you talk a bit about that relationship? Like, how do you make sure to do research in such a way, like you just mentioned, that brings in the community members towards the bigger goal of helping communities and and, um, sharing knowledge? 
Okay, so everything has been affected by the pandemic and research is part of what has been affected. So I can, I'll give two examples, I think, of how the pandemic has impacted research processes, but also makes us re-question, like, should we be doing this? Is this the best use of time and resources? So for example, we have this ongoing project where year after year, we go back to the same cohort of participants, native participants, and do a survey with them. It's a longitudinal study. It's really valuable scientifically and pragmatically for capturing change over time, measuring development, yada, yada. So what do you do when a pandemic hits? You can't go into people's home, or you shouldn't probably, risk exposure of the person and the interviewer. And, you know, there's all sorts of stressors happening. And so what do you do? Well, you know, you, and this is a small example, but we transition to like phone-based surveys. But then you start to question like, is this, people are so stressed. Do they really want to talk on the phone for 45 minutes to tell them, tell you about their family and their mental health? Like, is this crazy? Like, are we, are we totally misstepping? On the other hand, uh, tribally based interviewers told us, oh my gosh, participants are so stressed. They want to tell you about the COVID experience they're having. So we rapidly put together this COVID specific survey, applied to get some funding to generate it. And you have to move quickly to make that happen. On the flip side, you're like, wait, are we just adding a new burden? You know, more surveys, more questions, more. So that's a small example. A much bigger example, I think, is work around vaccines. Um, because the center I work with has, um, you know, a whole team dedicated to infectious disease work and people who do vaccine trials, that's what their life is. They had an opportunity should we do a vaccine trial in various sites? And, you know, there's certain criteria you have to meet. Like you have to have an MD who can meet the qualifications of the, the trial sponsor, and et cetera, et cetera. So, so many ethical questions came up, are coming up, and will continue to come up around this. Like, should the center have even considered this? Should they have entered into vaccine trials? But my question also is, should we have not, right? Like, the result of that has been Native peoples, I think, through participation are getting more access to vaccines, but we're also very leery of them. And so, you know, it's, I don't have the answer except to say that, man, we just have to keep having these conversations and debates and really think about it and, and talk through it. It's fascinating because, you know, we want to keep our communities healthy in a way that's, you know, honoring our lifestyles and our history, uh, historical trauma around medical research and medical, me the medical distrust that's, that can be out there. Leading up, you know, I would say March of 2020, up until the first vaccines were approved, mm -hmm. I, I was peripheral, but had a very, you know, sort of small role in some of the advocacy work nationally. And many other people deserve the credit for this, but, you know, trying to say like, when these vaccines are ready, communities who are most hardest hit need to get access first. And I think that actually kind of worked this time. Like native communities seem to be getting vaccines faster and rolling it out better than the rest of the world. But when, when native folks saw that, like just personally on Facebook, for example, I saw a lot of questions like, hold up, why are we getting it first? I don't trust that. <laughs> so there's, yeah, it's like, we shouldn't trust it. And did we not think through all of that when we were trying to advocate for it? Yeah, so much. Oh, yeah. Like communicating with the wider yeah. citizenry. Yeah, um, like, hey, we're get ready, guys, because we're, we're pushing for this. 
um, do you want us to push for this? (laughs) (laughs) All of the things it's like so much, but also you're living in this vacuum, like where we just sit in front of our zoom calls and we don't have community meetings as much and we don't Mm -hmm. get out there and socialize. So it's like, it's Mm -hmm. tough. Mm -hmm. But it's been really helpful though, to uh, see elders and healthcare professionals set that example um, through social media uh, with those uh, getting vaccine selfies, or, or maybe not yeah. selfies, but photos, um, and posting it and kind of uh, having a bit of a celebration almost around Native communities getting the vaccine and getting it early. The other thing that I find so beautiful is um, how broadly a lot of communities in our region here in Minnesota, you know, I know other states, too, are defining who's a community member and eligible to get a vaccine and allowing descendants or non-Native spouses or prioritizing culture keepers and language speakers. Just so cool. Like, you know, that's innovation in public health right there. Yep. Yep. So having that tribal sovereignty and um, ability to know your own communities and um, get the vaccine out there is you know, tribal communities see fit. I, I think I heard you talk about that there is a lot to learn from tribes. You know, uh, that that information isn't just for tribes to use just for tribes, but mm-hmm. also that it can be applied more widely. Can you speak a bit more to that um, if I'm hearing that right? Yeah, I, I, okay. I definitely believe it. I think, so first of all, as a scientist, I will go to professional organization meetings, conferences, for example, and I always get the sense that, oh, your, your talk is on American Indian stuff. That can't be relevant to me. And I just, it aggravates me so much. Like, but your talk on European Americans is relevant to me, you know, like, so why can't we, why can't it go both ways? So, um, you know, part of it is like feeling marginalized within the academy and like, whoa, hold up everybody. You have so much you could learn. So one of the examples of this uh, that I just really see over and over is um, strengths-based approaches to health and really centering like community and culture and healing and positivity as part of the journey to wellness. Whereas I think a lot of other models, dominant models of like substance use prevention, for example, or even um, diabetes kind of models, they really center the disease or the condition and think about risk factors more so than protective factors. And we have so many things to celebrate in tribal communities that, um, and so many, I think, advanced theories and applications of positive pathways to well-being that I actually think the entire world is hungry for. I think we just are tired of this negative deficits doom and gloom, opioids, depression, suicide. And um, if people listen to us, I think, you know, we could have major paradigm shifts in public health and beyond. Uh, And that's just one example. The others are just like we talked about, like with COVID-19, crazy innovations that um, are so, so like common sense, but uh, people could learn so much. And I'll give you one example. My, most of my family lives on the Boys Fort Reservation in Northern Minnesota. And someone was telling me that right when the pandemic hit, the Department of Natural Resources up there 
some of the guys who are usually in the woods, you know, like working on trees or whatever, they were asked to go gather medicines to bring to elders. That's what they they were assigned to do for their work. And what if we reallocated resources in innovative ways like that at a national or a global level? It'd be so cool. I see so much literature and talk for good reason about loneliness and about isolation. Mm -hmm. And this was even before the pandemic. You know, our former Surgeon General wrote a book about being lonely and how people who are lonely, um, that's it's like a risk factor comparable to smoking or being overweight. It's it's like a big deal. Mm -hmm. And you know, our communities have been assaulted through historical trauma and colonization and our ways of relating have been um, attacked. And yet somehow we come out on the other side, still emphasizing community. I think we still have a lot of communal values that you can see in the policies that are made that we've talked about. And so, oh my gosh, wouldn't you want to learn how, how entire cultures of peoples who have been, whose community has been assaulted still managed to hang on to that more so than I would say the general U.S. society. Like, wow, that's, that's amazing. You're listening to a special edition of Minnesota Native News, COVID-19 Community Conversations. COVID-19 Community Conversations is supported by the Minnesota Department of Health. I'm Leah Lem. I'm speaking with the director of the Great Lakes Hub for the Johns Hopkins Center for American Indian Health, Melissa Walls. And today we're talking about the rich Native knowledge, tribal knowledge, that's been protecting our communities that broader society can learn from. Here's the next part of our conversation. Is there any bit of research that you'd like to highlight? I mentioned earlier that we got funding, rapid funding, to kind of do this add-ons COVID survey with communities. And, you know, we're just starting to get that information in, but the the findings so far won't surprise anybody except that, um, you know, the, the key thing is people are so stressed when they have kids in the home, you know, so trying to help kids go to school. Um, oh. Man, I don't know if you do that. I have a, I have a high schooler and I just can't even help him. I don't, I don't know. Oh, mine's seven. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's tough. It's tough. But also I think mental health, uh, mental health and substance use relapse are kind of popping out in preliminary uh, findings. And, you know, I think we hear about this, but I really want us all to pay attention to when this is all over, those impacts are are still going to sit with us for a while. And thinking about not just the COVID curve, but the wellness curve that goes with it. So mental health, spiritual health, physical health is, is there. That's the thing that we tend to highlight emotional health, social health, how do we all come back together after this uh, is kind of what the research is signaling to me. And I think even anecdotes and communities that we need to be ready for something longer term than even this long marathon of the pandemic and shutdown. So what have you learned either personally, professionally um, from life in the pandemic? We always say relationships matter in our communities. We say it as researchers working with tribes, relationships matter, but wow, do we feel it when it's, when those are kind of impacted by this pandemic. Zooming is not the same. Phone calls are not the same. It, it's really hurt, you know, a lot of us in so many ways, but I think we're also, also excited to just reconnect and reconvene and, you know, just think of powwows again, like what? We're all going to be in the same spot. I also think it's really striking to me that, you know, Again, the dominant narrative in our communities from other people, I think, 
from the outside looking in is, oh, tribes are really disadvantaged. They're really impoverished. They really have a lot of public health issues. And some, you know, some of that's true. But wow, look at us now. Like, look how, as we've been talking about, look how we're innovating. Look how we're leading uh, the way in terms of vaccine rollout and percentage of people vaccinated and how we decide who to prioritize. Look how we're leading the way in taking care of elders. Look how tribes are prioritizing mental health and long-term taking care of people as we recover from the losses and the grief of this pandemic. So, you know, very real pain, very real um, trauma, and such resilience and innovation within our communities. I and professionally, I just I think the best is yet to come for us, and and we all need to take a quick break when this is over. <laughs> like we're all really tired, and I can't wait to get off Zoom. Oh my goodness. <laughs> So, Melissa, you mentioned you did wellness boxes for tribal communities, right? Yeah. Well, so during March, April, May, you know, early in the pandemic, which feels like five years ago, um, early in the pandemic, our our team members who live across 11 different reservations and reserves, uh, you know, they were calling the office and saying, gosh, you know, people are tired. Their kids are at home. Some people are losing their jobs. Um, I just, I feel mentally heavy. I feel stressed. And we've been doing research on these topics for like decades. And we're like, what are the antidotes to those stressors? Or like, what what can offset the effect of stress? And we knew that access to cultural teachings and knowledge and engagement is one gangbuster predictor of good outcomes in our data. And two is like having a sense of belonging and community. So we took our own data and said, let's build a box that has tools that are reflected in what communities have taught us. And so we put in, for example, we had an elder who permitted us to put in teachings about offering tobacco and what that means. And um, another elder shared a written recipe for how to gather cedar to make cedar tea. And we put um, information on smudging and smudge supplies in the box. But we also put in things like lavender scented essential oils to help you sleep. And here are some books you can read with the kids in your house to, you know, feel connected. And here's how you can reach out to people despite the pandemic. And then a bunch of COVID-19 just best practices to keep you safe. And the list goes on and on. But when we sent these boxes out to team members and tribal community members, I was actually shocked at the response. It was not a huge lift. It was a pretty simple thing to send out, but it brought people to tears and it did the thing it was meant to do, which was let them know they're cared about and that community is still here, even if not physically so. And so that was like my favorite thing that our, our team got to do this past year. Chimigwech, Melissa Walls for taking time to talk. Melissa Walls, PhD, is Boys Ford and Kuchiching First Nation Anishinaabe and is the director of the Great Lakes Hub for the Johns Hopkins Center for American Indian Health and is an associate professor of international health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Now, I want to take some time to talk about the Vaccine Connector. If you haven't heard, it's an online tool for all Minnesotans who haven't been vaccinated yet for COVID-19. When you sign up for the Vaccine Connector, it will notify you when it's your turn to get the vaccine. More information can be found at mn.gov vaccineconnector on the state's website. 
Not only will signing up alert you when you're eligible to receive a vaccine, it will connect you to resources to schedule a vaccine appointment and notify you if there are vaccine opportunities in your area. Tribes have their own method of scheduling vaccines for their citizens, so this is another opportunity to keep up to date. Thank you for listening today. Chimigwech. Links to the Johns Hopkins Center for American Indian Health Great Lakes Hub and the state of Minnesota's Vaccine Connector are on the episode page at minnesotanativenews.org. Gigawabamin, and I wish you health. I'm Leah Lem. Minnesota Native News Special Edition COVID-19 Community Conversations is supported by the Minnesota Department of Health.